And many of you know what I mean when I talk about the elephant in the room. You've been in a family or you've been in an organization where, where everybody knew there was an issue, there was a problem, there was a debate going on, and yet nobody would really talk about it. And so this morning, I want to talk about the elephant in the room in our church, which is the topic of musical instruments. I, actually, I have worded it, the instrument outside the room, okay? And I think it's very important to distinguish because of what we've been doing this summer. I do not believe musical instruments is the eighth deadly sin. Okay? So, so, so stay with me. So, so why are we talking about this? And let me just sort of go over a few things as we begin. Let me tell you, first of all, why I really hesitate to talk about this. Because this is a difficult subject. Some of you are sitting here going, what in the world? I don't even know this was an issue. Others of you, it is a big issue. Now, let me say why I hesitate is because uh, despite maybe my reputation, I have no desire to stir controversy. Really don't. I love the unity of this church. And what I certainly don't want is for this issue to ever dominate us as a body and to get us off mission. I've been a part of conservative churches and progressive churches that were dominated by issues, and that's all they talked about. And we're not going to do that. If there's something good about this church, is that we're a very non-issue-oriented church. If there's something weak, is sometimes we fail to address things we need to address. And, and what I really hesitate about is I know there were some people who interpret this as a setup of what is to come. Well, this truly is a response and an explanation of our current beliefs and practices. And I hope you'll, re- you'll understand that. But the biggest reason that uh, I hesitate is because I know this to be a very emotionally charged issue for many of you. For many of you, it is personally. But I honestly know for a growing number of you, a bigger number of you, this is a sensitive issue because of your families. And when we talk about this or we practice something, you get a lot of heat from your family. And I, I really hate that. I understand that. I've been around the dinner table where we did stuff in church, and I've got to be with my family where it was very awkward, and either we talked about it or we didn't talk about it. I know myself, I've never preached a a, a whole sermon on this topic, but even just touching on this topic has caused me not to be invited to certain churches to speak at. The last time I touched on this back in January in a very light manner, had a whole pamphlet written about uh, about the sermon. It was a complete response to everything I'd said and, and distributed. So I understand your pain. And, and the last thing I want to do is to add to that hurt that may go on with you. But I think we've got to talk about it. Why? Number one, I'm talking about it today because my elders have asked me to. And, and I seek to be obedient in those matters, all right? They think it's time we address this. Number two, we are constantly asked about this issue. Uh, When a newcomer comes outside of our fellowship, the first thing they notice and ask about, sometimes in whispered tones, is where are the instruments? And, And then for some of you who are insiders who grew up in this movement, and we advertise Good Friday instrumental worship. I'm going to get cornered and ask, why are y'all doing this? What, what is this about? I, I, let me tell you my personal opinion. I hate that title. I hate the title because I think it puts the emphasis on the wrong place. But let me tell you why we do that is because as a leadership, our goal has been to not force this issue on anybody. So you know about it. You can attend or you cannot attend. And so that's the way we've tried to handle this. And so um, here's why I want to talk about this today. Because I believe we're a very healthy family. And healthy families do this. I know in our day, 
of labeling people and screaming at each other, that this is very uncommon for people to have civil discussions about controversial matters. But if any place it ought to be to happen, it ought to be to happen among God's people. We have taught for years in this church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and many other passages that indicate there are primary matters of doctrine and theology and there are secondary matters. This whole church was taken through Landmark 101 probably 18 years ago. And every one of you who's become a member has gone through that. And in that time, we always emphasize the primary things. And every time, I've always listed instrumental music as a secondary issue. So my friends, I would be greatly disappointed if we couldn't talk about something that's just secondary. In fact, let me say this. I will not be disappointed at all if you walk away from here and you disagree with me. I'll be extremely disappointed if you think we can't have this discussion openly. That would be a sign of immaturity as a body. So let's get into it. Let's first of all just talk about our history in Churches of Christ. Churches of Christ are part of a movement starting the last part of the 17th century, early part of the 18th century, called the Restoration Movement. It was quite an exciting movement. There were a bunch of Christians who began to look around and say, you know, we're all divided by different denominations and man-made creeds and disciplines. Why don't we just let go of those things and just be a back-to-the-Bible movement and say, let's open the Bible, let's speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, and let's just be Christians but not the only Christians. And in the early part of the 1800 that whole concept just exploded. By 1850, it was the fourth largest religious movement in the country and the fastest growing. But some things began to happen that turned this unity movement into an extremely splintered movement. The first thing was the Civil War, which just drew lines in lots of places. The next thing was a topic like I'm talking about today, musical instruments. When some churches, because their singing was just so terrible, decided we need to add something to make it better, it became a very controversial issue. And by 1906, the American uh, census distinguished two parts of our movement, the Churches of Christ that were a cappella, singing without instruments, and the Christian church, which would later splinter into a liberal and conservative wing that was instrumental. And and, and so we've had this, this history And this has been a a big-time issue and a distinguishing mark, many think, of us. Now, in recent decades, many churches of Christ have begun to to practice instrumental music in their worship. But that's sort of where we've come from. Now, what I want you to see from that, and what I appreciate about being a part of this movement, is that we have a rock-solid commitment to Scripture. Do I disagree with some of the conclusions? Yes. But what I don't disagree with was the heart that went into those conclusions. It was the idea is we want to be as biblical and scriptural as we can be. And so if you take anything away from our movement, I want you to understand that whatever topic comes up in this church, the question we're always going to ask is, what does the Bible say? That's the great part of this restoration movement. Now, that brings me to what I want to tell you is my history. And this certainly does not have to be your history and may not be your history. I grew up in this movement. I grew up in a church where this was literally taught as a salvation issue. I I heard preachers say, growing up, if you sing with the piano, you are going to hell. Literal, not exaggerated. And frankly, I I I bought that. I thought, yeah, we're right about this. 
We, we, the church I grew up in, we had a weekly radio program. I very early knew I wanted to be a preacher. And I had in my mind my sermon I was going to do on the radio and straighten the whole city of Montgomery out on musical instruments. I, I, I had it clearly in my mind. I, w- I was going to do that. But then I started watching closely because I saw us drawing lines of fellowship and telling people they were going to hell about this. And, and yet there were other issues in our church, like how the Holy Spirit works in your life, or can a Christian fight in war or not, which, frankly, as a teenager, I thought, those are much bigger issues than this one the Bible doesn't even address. And I just began to ask everybody I could to explain that to me. I'll be honest, I don't think I ever got a good explanation. So that changed me from thinking it was a salvation issue to my next step was that it was a scriptural issue. I still bought the arguments. I thought they were right, but I never thought at that point it was big enough to split churches about. Now, even as a, as a scriptural issue, I was very particular about this. If I went to a, another church that had instruments, I'm embarrassed to say this today, I would sit there and I would not sing because I thought I was doing something wrong. And, and so the older I grow, I, I finally moved to what I call this is a, a preference issue. I don't think it's a salvation issue. I don't even think it's a scriptural issue. I think it's a preference issue, and that's what it became for me. The more I studied the Bible, the more I looked at it, the more I thought, you know, acapella worship is is awesome. I I began to to appreciate instrumental worship and and love participating in that. But but honestly, if I could be truthful with you today, which obviously I hope I can, is I prefer acapella worship. When I experience something like what we just experienced, that good, I I love the purity of it. I love the simplicity of it. I I love that we're using the instrument, the most intricate instrument that God has ever created to praise him. I think it's just a beautiful thing. But no longer do I think I've got to be upset about it and draw lines about it. It's just a matter of of preference. And maybe for you, that, that is where you have come to. So what changed my mind? Let me just go ahead and give you my outline already. The Bible, looking closer at some of the arguments we gave, and really thinking about there are much deeper issues than this. First of all, let's talk about the Bible. Let's look at the Old Testament for a moment. It is very clear throughout the Old Testament that God didn't just allow instrumental music. He commanded it, and he was pleased with it. Uh, Look at a few passages with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and the Israelites were standing. Now understand, there was great detail given in the Old Testament about what temple worship could, do, could be. What you did and what you didn't do. And one thing you did was you worshiped with instruments. Listen to Second Chronicles chapter 29. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres. In the way prescribed by David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet, this was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Now, understand this. The focus was not on instruments. The focus was on how to most effectively focus our worship on God. Listen to this passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. The trumpeteers and singers joined in unison. This wasn't singing and instruments separate. It was 
unison. And listen to what he says here. As with one voice. It was a part of their praise. To give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices and praised the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Now, I can show you so many passages. The passage that gave me fits as a young man was Psalm 150. Anybody read that? It was the last psalm. I thought it didn't belong in the canon, all right? Because it messed me up so much. Because what it says was so different. You say, well, why would the psalm mess you up? Because I knew that the early church used the psalms as their songbook. So what did they do when they got to Psalms 150? Let me read it to you. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with the tremble and dancing. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Resounding cymbals. Everything has breath. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The, remember, these are the Psalms commanded in the New Testament to read and sing. Doesn't it seem a little odd to you that the Holy Spirit would command us to sing Psalms we are forbidden to practice? And on top of all of this, please understand the instrumental praise was ordained by God before the giving of the old law. Exodus 15, verse 20. It was back there with tithing before the old law ever came into place. And yet I heard arguments from our people that went like this. This is an exact quotation from an article against the use of musical instruments. This is how they dealt with those Old Testament passages. God tolerated the use of instrumental music as he did David's polygamy and the rebellious kingdom, but he approved of neither. Listen to me, guys, this is pretty plain. There is no hint in the entire Bible that God was ever anything but pleased by instrumental praise offered from sincere hearts. No way you can come up with that statement. So then when you say, okay, buddy, that's Old Testament, that doesn't really count. Well, I don't believe that, but let's, let's, let's talk about it. Let's go to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we've seen God commanded it, praised it, and blessed it. Now, now here's what I would expect. If God is going to change his mind about this, would you not expect to get to the New Testament and find a clear passage condemning its use? Or a clear passage saying, a cappella praise only is pleasing to God. Or certainly a prophecy announcing the end of instrumental music. Can I ask you, is that what we find in the New Testament? None of those three things ever happen. In fact, there's sort of a bridge passage that I've just studied recently that, that sort of ties it together. Romans chapter 15, uh, Paul is writing, and Paul is um, quoting a psalm. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now, he is quoting 
Psalm 59. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. You say, what, what is the significance of that, buddy? The Hebrew word used back in Psalms 57. Every lexicon defines this word, zamar, as including instruments in its praise. So there seems to be a bridge there. We, we, we look at Jesus, and Jesus never deals with this issue. You would expect something that would be big enough to split wide open the bride of Christ would certainly at least be addressed. We get to the book of Acts where we see the church explode. We're looking for a pattern of worship. There is no pattern. We notice Acts chapter 2. Every day they continued the early church to meet together in the temple courts. Now, guys, we understand that the temple worship was absolutely instrumental. Apparently, they could worship in spirit and in truth in the presence of instruments. And as we continue to look through the New Testament, as hard as we may look, it's really hard to find a command about the assembly, about congregational worship. This was a game changer for me. The, the, the proof text passages we had used through the years actually were about daily spirit-filled life. For instance, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. He says, be filled with the Spirit. What, what does that lead to in your everyday life? Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Colossians three sixteen parallel passage. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit with gratitude in your hearts to God. He's interested in that heart response. Then James five thirteen every day. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any of you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Note, all these references in the New Testament refer to the individual's daily walk with God and with fellow Christians. In none of these passages do we see the corporate assembly as the context. Ironically, the only reference to song in the corporate assembly refers to solos. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, there's our assembly, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now, the argument would be made is that we are only commanded to sing. But what I would say is there's no command to sing only. To make sing mean sing only is actually a human inference that comes very dangerously close to speaking where God has not spoke. I ask you this. Can we honestly say that early Christians, especially in their view, in their knowledge of the Old Testament, would have concluded that sing actually meant sing unaccompanied. Would have they assumed that, knowing everything they knew? Being actually very knowledgeable, the early Jewish Christians of the New Testament. To show you how far our movement went in making this a big deal, I can literally remember a preacher telling me when I questioned this, 
that on, in the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people were baptized, before they were baptized, they understood that they should only sing a cappella. Now, now think about that. Now, I believe that guy was as sincere as he could be. But that's a stretch. That's, we don't even use language like that today. If I were to invite you over this fall on a cool fall day and say, we've got some property out in the country, and we'd like you to come. We're going to roast marshmallows and weenies, and we're going to have a campfire, and, and we're going to sing some songs. Would it shock you that I brought a guitar out? Well, it would probably shock you if I brought a guitar out, Okay. <laughs> But would it shock you, you know, if, if someone said, okay, uh, and we start, nobody, you said we're just going to sing. It really, really doesn't hold good water, guys. And then, this really sticks out, how about heaven? We get to the book of Revelation, and John gives many references to instrumental music happening in heaven. Understand, when he's talking about heaven here, he's not talking about heaven way down there. He's talking about, to these people under persecution, what is going on in heaven right now. Just listen to these passages. The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Or how about... Chapter 15, and saw, I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb. Now, I, I literally have heard someone say they only held the harps, okay? They didn't play them. Well, that, that wouldn't make much sense. Because we've got a persecuted group of people who need encouragement and they get a picture of heaven right then in what's going on. Are we to believe that God despises on the earth what he enjoys in heaven? So we've looked through the, the Bible. The second thing that happened to me is I had to deal with some of our arguments. More the arguments I had believed. Please listen to me on this, guys. I did not want to come to the conclusion I'm with. I, I wanted to stay that way. But, but I began to look at Scripture, and it just, wow, look at what we just looked at. And then I began to, 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 to evaluate some of our arguments. Guys, if you read the debate books on this, this argument was based on the word solo. That, that is the word for Psalms in Ephesians 5.19. Among acapella-only people, what they contend is that the meaning of solo, which had always meant to play a stringed instrument in the first century, actually began to mean to sing only. And so they believe that, it, that and there may be some evidence there that at different points in history the word may have meant different things. That's not unusual for words. But some contend that it meant only sing by the first century, and that's how Paul meant it to be understood. But understand, they did not have the New Testament written and compiled. What they learned from was the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Hebrew Scripture. That was their Scriptures. And understanding that, they wouldn't have understood it that way. 
And there's good evidence that scholars don't agree with that. The word solo is clearly used to mean to play an instrument by one of the most famous historians in the first century, Josephus, and by a Roman historian, Suetonius, in the second century. The the question here, guys, is is was it the Holy Spirit's purpose to forbid the use of instrumental music when he used a word commonly associated with it? Because there are lots of words that Paul could have picked from that could have meant sing only. The problem is us trying to make sing mean sing only. We don't look at other New Testament texts this way. Let me give you a couple examples. Paul told Timothy, when your stomach is upset, use a little wine for your stomach. Okay, does that mean that's all he could use for his stomach? Does that exclude Pepto-Bismol? No. In James, where he says, if you're sick, call the elders. Great instruction. You ought to do that. But does that mean you, shouldn't, you couldn't call anybody else? You couldn't call your friend? You couldn't have your spouse pray with you? We, we don't interpret any other verses to be that exclusive. And so, we had to deal with that issue. The next issue, and this was the big issue, was silence. It was based on that slogan I mentioned earlier, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible's silent. The um, original people in our movement didn't mean for that to mean that silence was prohibited. What they were trying to say is, if we're going to find unity as Christians on the things the Bible clearly speaks about, man, we've got to agree on those. And on these other things, that would almost be impossible to agree on. The argument from the silence of Scripture is that if anything is not specifically authorized in Scripture, it is forbidden. In other words, God accepted and commended Israel music in the Old Testament. He loves it in heaven, and yet in the New Testament, he wiped the slate clean, and he never specifically reauthorized it. But let's be honest. There's lots of things we do, guys, that aren't specifically authorized. That we have a church building with something unknown in the first century. That we use songbooks. Well, we don't. That we have songbooks with something they didn't have. We've gotten more biblical. Something they didn't have in the first century. I believe this to be a deeply flawed interpretive method that is inherently inconsistent and divisive. Because, guys, if you're going to apply this method, you've got to be honest enough to see how other parts of our movement have applied this method. This is the very reason that, that there are people who go to church today who only take communion with one cup. I would admit they're rather small churches, but they take it with one cup. Why do they do that? Because of the law of exclusion. All the Bible mentions is one cup. It never says you can have multiple cups. There are people who won't go to a church building with a kitchen in it because the Bible doesn't authorize that. And it even went so far that you cannot support orphans out of the church treasury. The same argument is used because we don't have specific authorization. So guys, if we're going to live with this, we've got to live with it always. The point is, Jesus himself violated the law of exclusion. There is no mention in the Old Testament of synagogue. And yet Jesus worshiped in the synagogue every Sabbath. And on top of all this, think about this question. What great message message has God ever communicated 
by saying nothing. Well, let me give you the last argument. And I, honestly, I think this is the strongest one. This is the one that stuck with me the longest. It's history. Uh, what, what early church history says is for the few, first hundred, few hundred years of the church's history, the church did worship a cappella. Now, we probably don't know every church, but overall, that does seem to be the history, is that they worshiped without instruments. Now, th- we assume that to be true, but the issue is not what they did. The issue is why did they do that? Did they do it because they believed there was a scriptural, biblical issue with it? We don't see anybody argue that for hundreds of years. So, so why? Let me just give you a few ideas. One may have been that the early church was not a real wealthy place. How many people really had instruments available? Also, many of the early churches very quickly were undergoing persecution. That might have been the reason. And I think one of the major reasons may have been in the ancient world, instrumental music was associated often with pagan rituals and hedonism and debauchery. They didn't want to be associated with that. Even even the early um, Reformation fathers of major mainline denominations, John Calvin, John Wesley, most of them were in favor of a cappella worship. Not because they thought instrumental worship was wrong, but because they associated instrumental, the use of instruments with debauchery at a bar. So that may be the reason. The reason I would lean to is that the early church modeled their worship after what they had been doing every week already, which was synagogue worship. And though the synagogue was not mentioned in Scripture, the synagogue was a consistent meeting place, and the synagogue was a cappella. Now, again, why was the synagogue a cappella? Here's what I think is the, probably the answer. The answer is the rabbis believed to play an instrument would have been work on the Sabbath. And so I think that's probably the major reason. Now, all those are nice reasons but none of those are biblical. We need to understand church history. It should be a guide to us, but it is not an authority. For example, the early church always met in homes and sang only in unison. They knew nothing of four-part harmony. But we don't bind those practices. So the arguments, at least in my mind, didn't seem to add up very well. But then here's what really bothered me, was the deeper issues of what this position and how we communicated it, communicated to other people. What it said about the Bible. Here's what I always ask. Could someone sincerely just pick up their Bible, knowing nothing about our position or anybody else's position, and read the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, and would they really come up with the conclusion that to praise God with instruments was sinful. And guys, that's our authority. I think the problem was, out of a great heart, we, we began to read the New Testament as if it were the Old Testament. Guys, listen, in the Old Testament, God was very specific. He said, you do this, 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 and this, and you don't do this, 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 and this. But you get to the New Testament, and he's not that specific. But we wanted to be faithful to God, to read the New Testament as if it were just one, and we used to use these terms, it was the constitution of the church. 
And so we read epistles and letters and, and prophecy, not like what their literary general was, but we read it as if it was a constitution looking for patterns. And so I think we had a good heart and good motives. I think we just had a bad method. And then what does it say about God? I grew up thinking God was looking for a reason to condemn me, possibly even something never even talked about. And I was so thankful when I read about Jesus, and he said, I've come to save you. My friend Rick Atchley, who has helped me a lot on this message, asked this question. Does my relationship with God and my eternal destiny hinge on my ability to discern God's inferences, interpret his silences, and pick up on his hints? My friend, if our salvation is based on that, we are all in trouble. What does this say about unity? An issue that at best is shrouded in silence, is it actually more important than the clear commands of God that his people be united? I don't think so. If we have proven anything, we didn't mean to prove this, but if we've proven anything over the last few decades as our movement is that unity will be impossible on the basis that we find complete agreement on secondary matters. And then, last, what does it say to our young people? Again, I love acapella worship. But we have younger generations that are coming up that are very musically oriented. Where my generation came to church, and the highlight was the sermon. Younger generations come to church where the highlight is the worship. I know they're wrong about that, but we just got to face that, okay? (laughs) They're very musically oriented. That's the way they connect. And these generations have been blessed with something that was new in my generation, which was Christian music. I don't know about you, but I much prefer my children and my grandchildren are listening to the Christian station than the country station or the rock station. And yet they're smart enough to go, why can I sing with this in my car, but I can't come to church and sing with it? And guess what I say, if, guys, let's just be open. This is a preference issue. It's a wisdom issue. I got that. But I, I'm telling you, we are losing legitimacy with our young people when we make arguments that they know don't hold water. In fact, I had a brother when I preached about this back in January, about what the big deals and little deals were, and we, we looked at baptism, communion, and instrumental music. And he came up to me after the service. He said, buddy, I agree with what you were saying, but I am in a dilemma. I really want to be in a church that has a strong view of baptism and and, and practices communion as the center of their worship. But I love instrumental music. That's how I connect with God. What What are you saying to me? Now, I know we can't please everybody. not trying to do that. But let's don't dare communicate to our children and grandchildren that we are more tied to our traditions than we are to Scripture. My friends, it's only 
honest for a movement that has asked everyone to examine things by Scripture and not tradition for us to be able to do the same thing. So let me conclude. What is the big issue here? I don't want this to become the big issue. The big issue is the heart of worship. What God has made plain is that he wants worship that is in spirit and truth. It's heartfelt and it's sincere. It's okay for all of us to have our preferences about what we like and what we don't like, new songs, old songs, a cappella, instrumental, in between. That's okay. My personal conviction is that I could worship God in a grand cathedral or I could worship God in the basement of my house. I could worship God in assembly with a big band and a thousand people, and I could worship God by myself a cappella in my closet. If I've got a heart for God, I'm telling you worships can come out. I love this story that our worship minister shared with me this week from Matt Redman. Matt Redman is a great songwriter. We've already sang one of his songs. We're about to sing another one. But he was in an Anglican church, and they were going through what all churches did a couple of decades ago, the worship wars. What do you sing? New songs, old songs. And, and finally, the priest of that local parish got very frustrated with all the debate about all the worship issues. And he said, guys, here's what we're going to do for the next three months. We are moving out of the sanctuary. We're going to a back room, and we're going to strip it away. We're taking away all the special lighting. We're taking away the special sound. We're taking away the instruments. We are going to be in a room for three months, and we are going to speak, and we're going to sing to each other. And that's where this song we're about to sing comes into play. Would you guys go ahead and start putting the music up while the worship team comes? Here's what it says. When the music fades, all is stripped away. And I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth, that will bless your heart. I'm bringing you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. This is my confession. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. The big question today is not whether you agree with me or not in what I've just said. The really big questions are, where is your heart toward other Christians who may be different than you? And the even bigger question is this. Where is your heart toward God? So as we sing this song, if for some reason you need the prayers of this church, why don't you come while we focus on God?